Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. You are beautiful, you are strong, and you're going to face a lot of problems maybe in life, and I want you to be able to deal with them. And you need to emotionally be able to be equipped with them. I just wanted people to know your skin tone doesn't define who you are, and it doesn't mean just because we don't have the same skin color, we aren't family. We can't navigate all of this for them. We can only help them find the path in order to build their confidence and who they are. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Our guest today is a former model and actress, a beauty entrepreneur, TEDx speaker, mother of three, and most recently the author of The Colourful Life, a book series featuring multiracial families, and it explores pertinent topics the families and the children within them face on a regular basis, from the arrival of new siblings to identity and adoption. Her mission is to simplify ideas of what identity is for children. Born in the UK to Ghanaian parents, she now lives in Perth with her Australian husband and their children, where she runs her beauty brand, Shia Purity. Her inspiration for her book series came from her move when she faced these challenges of having a multicultural family herself, which she feels is still a minority in many places of Australia. She wanted to help parents of multicultural families address these identity issues with their kids after facing some of the similar dilemmas herself after she became a mother. Her hope is to increase the understanding, awareness and overall acceptance of what people who come from mixed backgrounds is. She says we need to start to present a different idea of what family looks like. As a teacher who works with so many children and families myself, I could not agree more. It is my hope through this conversation that we learn more about her initiatives to raise not only her own children, but to empower the next generation of children to be the compassionate crusaders our world so needs and how her own unique experiences and journey can help with that. I am delighted to invite our guest, Naomi Casado Green, to the Elevate podcast today. Thank you for being here. Welcome, Naomi. Thank you for having me on. I'm really happy to be here. Oh, thank you so much for coming. It's so nice to talk to you. I know you've had a whirlwind of a year because you've been all over the shop in terms of moving countries, but you're back in Australia now. And how is the family settling? Are you all well? The family are really well and we're settling in great. It's It's been a big transition, but back to some normality is fantastic and not having to deal with covid on a daily level it's just um we're really happy and thankful australia seems to be in a really great place at the moment i think um, many countries are envious of how well you've managed to sort out covid out there so i would love to talk to you about what you're doing in australia and the ventures you've got going on there but i'd love to talk to you a little bit more about 
your actual life as a young girl in Britain, if you don't mind. Would you like to talk to me about what Naomi as a young girl was like in London? I, I loved living in London. I had so many relatives and close friends and family from all different backgrounds and different cultures. We had a community, which was the African Ghanaian community. Um, so most weekends we were at some family event. So we always had this cultural side. So every weekend we would be having different cultural dishes and, and, and the, the music playing in the background. And we had a support network. Um, and that's what I loved about London. In London, you felt like you belonged. Um, it was so diverse. Um, the culture was from everywhere. Everybody seemed to be your friends. It doesn't matter what color, what nationality, what ethnic group you were. It was just this big melting pot of, of different cultures. And so for me growing up, my school was quite mixed. It was still dominantly quite um, a white school, but we still had loads of different um, ethnic groups within our school. So it was just nice growing up in London. It's really interesting that you say that because I think different people of different races, maybe of different color. I know people of Indian, Asian or Pakistani cultural backgrounds found parts of London when they were living there or maybe north of England, very challenging as, as well. But the fact that diversity in London, because it's a bigger city, existed in a much more prominent and obvious way means that the sense of, oh, you've got different color skin to me, wasn't such a big deal, I'm, I'm assuming. But when I moved to England and we might go away to the countryside, I found that really strange, being the only Indian person in a village. <laughs> if we went outside of London, it was a different story. So when we used to go up to Grimsby, I'd be like maybe one of the only black people around town. So for me, I knew I was in, a, in an area that hadn't really seen that many black people. So I would always feel on guard, like on my own guard. But then I'd go back to London. And like you said, you wouldn't feel that way. We'd still get questions sometimes in certain places of London by innocent questions like how did your skin, you know, how come your skin so dark? And it was innocence for kids. But that's different. As from adult point of view, we used to do um, jobs for the school. They would set up a job so you would have to go into them and work there. And I set up this job in a hairdressing studio. They hadn't met me and they, um, the job was mine and I had to turn up on the Monday and I went to this job and I walked in and I said, hello, my name's Naomi. I'm here for, to work with you for the week, for the school, you know, apprentice week. And they looked at me and you could see by their faces, they were shocked. They didn't expect me to look like the way I looked. And they actually just said to me, oh, I'm sorry, the job's been taken. There, there isn't a job here. And I said, but it's been set up by the school so there has to be a job and they're like oh no no, no there is there is the job's not here and I knew in my heart I knew what was happening I didn't know what to do but I was so embarrassed I said okay fine I got so annoyed after it I told my friend and she was a white girl and her name was Debbie and we still remember this I said to her I want you to go in the next day and pretend that the job you know go in and ask for this job so she then went in the next day and said, oh, I've heard that there's a job going. Is it still available? And they said, yes, the job's available. And she said, when can I start? They said, well, you can come in in about an hour or so when we set things up. So then she went outside, called me in, and we both stood there. And we just stood in front of them and we confronted them. From then, I knew I had my voice. And, and I knew the kind of racism I would be facing. But for us to actually sit there in front of them and confront it, they tried to deny it and say, oh, no, on that day, there wasn't any jobs going. We didn't understand. But we knew. And 
that was heartbreaking for me to face course yeah no it's extremely heartbreaking for you to have to face I think that actually brings me on to my next question about as you grew up and really identifying and being proud of who you are which seems like you've done a great job of keeping that in there for your children as well as a mum. but you had a career as a model and that was in London as well right London, I only started a little bit in London because my dad didn't want me to do that. He was like, I don't want you to be a model. This is not the path I want you to go down. So sneakily behind his back, I did do some modeling um, and it was fun and, you know, it was low key, but it wasn't until I started in Australia that I really did a lot of my modeling. Interesting, because my question for you on that then is there's been a lot of talk about representation in the media and how many models we see in tabloids and magazines on TV and TV shows. And recently I was listening to an interview with Jamelia Jamil and Kelly Rowland, and she was talking about her experience as as one of the darkest members of Destiny's Child, sitting in the same makeup studio as the other members and being told, well, there's just no foundation that matches your skin color. Sorry, I can't do her makeup or I can't do her hair because of the texture or the I mean, I'm absolutely... It still happens. It still it happened to me many times. When I would turn up, they would have my profile picture. They knew what I looked like. And I would turn up. And the first thing they would say to me, this is in the beginning, they would say to me, we don't have your makeup. So all the girls would be done up. They'll just put, I'll just put eyeliner on you or a bit of um, concealer. They tried to use bronzer on my face to see if the brown bronzer, which was red, would work on my skin tone. I looked at them and I said, are you being serious right now? This is bronzer. This is red. My skin is brown. This is not even the same complexion as my skin. It would make me so upset, but I'm not a person to keep quiet and and just sit still. So I said to her, you knew I was going to be coming. I don't understand why you weren't prepared for my skin tone. And she said, because we don't really work on black people here. It's exotic. We don't, it's not something. And I'm like, you're a makeup artist. This is something that is, you, you should be able to find. You should, be, and, but it, again, but it wasn't always easy to find those. So the more and more I used to do the modeling, every time I would go in, it would be my hair would be an issue. Oh, we haven't touched your Afro hair. We don't know how to do it. Can you do it yourself? So a lot of the time I would end up having to do my own hair and my own makeup. And then I started buying and bringing my own makeup with me so that they could use it on my skin tone. And it was because if I wanted to look like the other models, I wanted my makeup done or to look professional, I would have to bring these things in myself. The shame on them. I, I, I just couldn't believe that they wouldn't be willing to go out and find these things in order to cater for someone of my skin tone. So it used to really frustrate me. And I used to feel alone to sit there, watch everybody else get their makeup done. I, was, I felt isolated and discriminated against. And that's how I felt because they really didn't care. They really didn't. Yeah, that's what strikes me as well, is that if these subliminal messages can continually creep into a mind and the psyche and the emotional well-being of a young person or models of even adult age and what it can do, what kind of impact it can have on their... It affects you. It really does. I know I was one of those stronger women. So I stood in my ground and I would always speak my mind. But for the young girls that would go into the industry and I'd see them go into, they would be very upset. You know, this person hasn't got my, what am I going to do? They would panic, they would freak out. And, you know, I'm like, just bring your own. This is what you need to do. You just need to focus. It's going to be okay. I never took the industry seriously. I really didn't. I, I knew modeling wasn't going to be my uh, my life. 
So for me, I was okay with it, but I always spoke to management about it. I always tried to say, can you make sure that your makeup artists are prepared? You know, if they're going to do the hair, can you, they please learn how to do our hair? It's not our job to come here and do that. And you're exotic looking was the one thing I used to absolutely hate from the model industry. You're exotic looking. You're not going to actually suit what the, our needs. What does exotic mean? What a cop out really, isn't it? Of being able to get out of something that they haven't been prepared for. And it's the layers of it, because I think modeling creates so many complexities in a girl's mind anyway, right? So you're physically what kind of shape, your height, things that you can't control anyway. And so you've got all these layers building that, okay, I've been accepted to a job or this agency's taken me on or, and then to get there feeling quite good that you made it through all those hurdles that I've been given the the green light to be a model and to then not be able to have the makeup and the hair done and the way the other models are having it done. I just think that there's so many punches into that whole process that can knock a child, a girl, an adult, a female. And yeah, it brings out so many emotions. But in terms of all of that experience as a young black lady, how has that empowered you then to talk to your own daughter today about? Well, I've got two. Two. Daughters. I, okay. Yeah. I, I, one I know is quite strong and I see herself in me. Like she's very tough. She knows her mind and she's only five. Oh. My other daughter, she's very, very sweet, but she really does know her mind. She really can stand up for herself. She's quite strong. My other daughter who is eight is the most loving, caring, sweetest person, but very sensitive, very sensitive. And for her, I have to always remind her that she's beautiful, that she's she needs to be strong and that words can hurt us, but we need to choose. It's her job to choose how it affects her and how to deal with it. At the moment, she sees me and hears conversations about my skin color and how I deal with it. And, you know, we have conversations about it, but I always keep saying to her, you are beautiful, you are strong. And you're going to face a lot of problems maybe in life. And I want you to be able to deal with them. And, and you need to emotion, emotionally be able to be equipped with them. So we sit down and we maybe have, we just have chats and we, we watch movies about um, mixed race families. And there's one called Brownish on the moment on the TV. It's an American show. And it talks about uh, being brown and, and having more, um, different ethnic groups and, and different families and, and how to navigate the world and, and how, how this young girl on the TV sees her life as a brown girl from her white parent and her black parent and, and how do we fit into that and I'm, I always say to you, you don't need to fit into anything. You are a brown girl with a white dad and a black mother and you just own who you are you are who you are and your color is not going to define who you are so your friend and like at the moment her friends in her school are all mostly white because our school is predominantly white and there's a very small way i think we're the only there's only two black um, families within the school 700 kids in the school there's two black families 40 indigenous families and the rest are white and it's quite hard for her and it's hard for me because she's now looking at them and seeing certain things that she hasn't got, like the hair again. 
one of her friends at the moment keeps touching her hair and, and she's really spoken to them about it. You know, she let them do the one touch and she said after that, I really don't like you touching my hair. Can you please stop? Her friend won't stop doing this. It's getting her emotionally distressed. And I, I keep speaking to her. How are you handling it? What are you saying to her? You know, if this is your friend, she should be listening to you. You need to be able to tell her to stop and she needs to respect the boundaries. And it's just little things like that. I'm trying to instill with her confidence to be able to speak her own truth and have a voice. Yeah, not bottle it all inside. and Not bottle it all in. She does. She really does. So, but she's not alone. So many girls, particularly as they're growing into that preteen stage where Elevate was created, was to try and address some of these issues. And what I find happens with people of difference, of color, of anything, is that they're the ones constantly trying to be the empathetic people and putting themselves in everybody else's shoes. And what, what other people are not doing is doing the same and trying to understand what your daughter feels like by having someone continually asking her yeah, questions or it touching sounds so, it sounds like people honestly think it's why do you make a big fuss of it but I keep saying it's like we're a pet I honestly feel like we're a pet that you're always constantly stroking and you haven't even asked to touch it you just it's like a stranger just coming to you and putting their hand in your head you don't know this person but they're stroking you and petting you and it makes you it honestly makes you feel different they make you feel like you don't belong when they do that and I don't want her feeling that way. And this is why I want her to be able to stand and say to them, stop, this is, this is my space. I, I don't want that. So true. It's such so an important message for her to have. And I agree with how difficult that is to teach a young child who's desperately trying to fit in, make friends in a new place, possibly, you know, all of that. They're juggling so many other elements in their day. And then to have that one added, it seems like a difficult one. Move us on then, because it speaks to the same thing that I listened to when you did your TEDx talk, which for all of our listeners is a brilliant talk to have. I will link it in my show notes for everybody. Naomi did a brilliant story, a talk that you started the whole TED talk with the news story that many of our my listeners, uh, most people around will be very, very familiar with. It's that, is it BBC interview of the man who was, this is before COVID. So this was a time where um, video conference calls from home were not the norm and having children screaming into the, which might happen to either of us today, we don't know, but yeah, and that's a now a new norm, right? A reality that we can all accept. So, but back then it wasn't. And yes, I think one of the great things that you said when the clip went viral is that so many people found this pre-pandemic such an unusual experience and one that was surprising, really funny. And funny because they thought this child, where the way the child was being taken out by the I'm going to put the word in quotes because everyone assumed, assumed, all the viewings assumed that the person trying to take this baby out was the nanny and not mm. the baby's mother. Um, right. And this is the part of the story that struck such a chord with you. And it was resonating with you in a way that was probably on a different scale to lots of people that viewed that video. And I really appreciate the way in which you brought to light what it is people of mixed families and races and, and what blended families look like can feel and what kind of trigger that might have created for some of our other viewers that watch that thing. So could you talk to us a little bit more about that and, and how you then base the formation of your TED Talk from that? So the video was basically this young Asian woman in the background, uh, a white man was on screen um, doing a BBC interview and you saw this Asian woman like hustling these kids out of the room and slamming the door and a lot of the comments on social 
were basically saying, oh my God, look at the nanny, look at how the nanny was treating the kids or look at this nanny. And I never even, when I saw that video, I never even assumed the nanny. I automatically just thought she was a mother. So I, I thought to myself, why are so many people assuming this woman was the nanny? And I said, it's the stereotype, here we go. It's a stereotype, you know, Asian woman being a nanny or of this person being a nanny. Why didn't they look at this woman and think she was the mother to the children? And it just got me thinking. And it wasn't until something, something happened to me when I was with my son. When my son was born, he was very white, very white and um, straight hair, straight black hair. And I, he was in um, a baby Bjorn. We were walking around in uh, Sydney and I walked him into a shop. And this woman, she, she came over to us and, and she said, oh, he's so cute. He's so cute. And she says, is, 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 is he yours? And I thought to myself, why wouldn't he be mine? Like, I don't understand. Why are you questioning this baby's on my body? Why would you be questioning it? And I said, yes, he's, yes, he's mine. And she went, oh, oh, it's, look at his skin. Like, and, I, and I realized that a lot of people when I was walking around with my son would always ask if I was the nanny because of the skin color. They would they would equate my skin color being dark and his skin color being light that we weren't, we weren't related. He, it, I wasn't his mother. I wasn't his child's mother just because of my skin color. And, and the emotion, the trigger that it makes, the how it makes you feel when someone is basically saying, you can't be this child's mother just because of the skin tone. And I think because of that, it triggered me onto my TED talk. Um, to make people open up their eyes, basically, and remember that we don't have to be monoracial families in order to be a family. You know, we, we can be, families are made up of so many different, you know, backgrounds and cultures and skin colors and skin tone. And, I, and especially back then, I don't, you know, there's so many mixed race families. Like, I don't understand why people were questioning it. It was, it was a shock to me. And Something right, just, we take for granted, right? Coming from a cosmopolitan. Yeah, yeah. So when I started to delve more into it, I understood the reasons why I was getting questions because there was a lack of exposure to multiracial families, ethnic groups, and people of color in the media. And this is why I was constantly being questioned. And I just wanted people to know your skin tone doesn't define who you are. And it doesn't mean just because we don't have the skin, same skin color, we aren't family. We're on the boat, the, um, we were on cruising. And this old woman came up to my husband. He goes, so good that you adopted these kids. It wasn't a question. She, it was a statement. And my husband, I said to him, what did you say? He goes, I, I didn't actually know what to say. I was so, I, he was in shock. My husband never really gets to deal with this. And for him, I think he was so taken back. He didn't actually say anything. I think the moment it had passed and she had walked off. But it was just like, wow, really wow. This is, this is the idea we have in our head. If a white person is of a, a child of color, we've, they've adopted them. If a black person or a person of color is with a child who is white or light-skinned, we are the nanny or the au pair or you know, the help. I'm with you on that. I think these conversations hopefully will start to get those the people to unlearn the things they've been socially conditioned to learn. And I find that that's the biggest mission. I don't find that our children have these worries when they're born, right? It's, it's the parents and the generations that come before them. It's education. It's education. And it needs to start in schools, to be honest with you. I think we need to start 
teaching these acts, you know, in schools and sitting down with kids and addressing these issues. And this is what, you know, we're doing at the moment. But unless we start from a very young age, because sometimes families won't speak about these kind of things. But I think as a school system, we should. I honestly think we need to expose kids to this kind of thing. Yeah, you can't teach empathy or emotional intelligence, which is what I keep trying to harp on about with my superpowers, unless we have it part of their daily education. It's something that, that we feed in, drip feed in from a young age so that they learn perspectives and open their eyes to the differences in different homes and how one family can look different. Brings me on to this whole question around assumptions, right? The fact that people have the right, and I think that's exactly what the, a lot of the reading that I'm doing recently and trying to educate myself around Black Lives Matter, what privilege, and then specifically what white privilege looks like. The fact that they think they can make these statements to your husband as an assumption, that's a privilege that possibly lots of people of color wouldn't even, you can't explain that to white people unless you've had to experience it on the other end. So what they really need is some empathy, right? Being able to try and understand how that makes the other person feel if the shoe was on the other foot, but they've never had to be asked those questions. So they They can't. They've never had to, they can't. And and that's the thing. And then it's very hard to have these conversations too. I always try and have them, but a lot of the times when I have them with white people, I always find they get very defensive. And when they get defensive, I'm then putting my emotions aside in order to take care of their needs and their emotions because it's a liability. I didn't mean it that way. You, you got it wrong. This is not what I was trying to say. Um, you don't understand. So it's conversations like that. It's draining for us people of color, black people, minority, it's draining to constantly try and have a conversation with you and for you not to actually hear it. It's the hearing part that you need to stop and listen to what we are facing on a daily basis. The microaggressions, the jokes, every time we have to hear it, it's hard, it's emotionally hard. And unless you've been put in a situation where you've ever had to face racism, you'll never understand how it feels. And this is why it's very important that the Black Lives Matter has made this movement, made people want to internalize how they feel. They're picking up books, they're exploring more, they're talking to people of color more about what racism means. And I love that. I honestly do love that. But it's not just talking about it, it's taking action. It's walking the walk, not just talking the talk. You really do need to sit down and, and internalize what does it mean to me? You know, how can I do something about this? Yeah, let's talk about what you mentioned in your TED talk as in terms of taking action and actually not just talking the talk and walking the walk. There was a, a scene in there about a toy shop that I really, it really struck me because I was totally ignorant and unaware of this type of microaggression or, you know, draining conversations for you to be able to have because you're leaning into other people's discomforts rather than the other way around, which is where I feel that the, the issue lies there, right there. But would you talk to me about that and tell me what propelled on your mission to try and speak to the wider audience on why this is, why this is a problem? First, I used to work in childcare. So in childcare, I would, in childcare, there would be hardly any resources reflecting people of color, indigenous people, cultural stories or anything like that. There was no resources in these childcares. And when I would walk in, 
I, you know, the kids would be frightened by me because I really, there wasn't hardly any black people that would be into these child cares. And so I'd have like questions constantly asked about me, you know, are you an Aboriginal from the TV or, you know, why is your skin color like that? And, uh, you know, they would be scared. Oh, mommy, you know, she, she's quite scary. She's a monster. And, and the parents wouldn't address them, even though they were saying it in front of them. That monster one was right in front of the parents. This young baby said, this young child said it. And the mother just smiled and walked away. And the feeling when I heard that child, it wasn't the child, it was the adult not saying anything and just walking away. And then I thought to myself, this is childcare. This is an education system where we need to start implementing some changes. And then I saw an ad again on the TV where it's saying every child should be playing, every child should be happy. And, and this advert featured only white children in this ad. And it was talking about every child, but yet there was no other child of any other race or ethnic group. So first of all, I started sourcing books. I started sourcing books from different cultures, different ethnic groups, stories that reflected people of color. And it was so hard to find in Australia. I had to actually buy them from America and then source them from there. Even black dolls were more expensive for me to find. And again, hardly any in Australia. I had to get them from the US. But when they were in Australia, they were more expensive than the white dolls. And there were hardly any. So this is the problem. When you would go to search them, the, the small amount they did have on the shelves would be gone and it would just be pure white dolls on the shelf. So for me, it was like, how am I supposed to, to find all of these resources if there's none in Australia? So even though I, though I had to get them from America, I still implemented these changes. I still got the teachers to start putting books of different groups and different colours and different people and different ethnicities. The dolls were a main thing because there was hardly any dolls of colour that were in there and Asian dolls, black dolls, Aboriginal dolls were so old, these dolls, they didn't even look like Aboriginal people. And I'm like, this isn't what they look like. I don't understand why you're putting dolls. So I made them go buy new sets of toys so they could have them in childcare. So once I had done that and I would like contact all the schools, can you please make sure these are the things that you have in your childcare centers? I started to then write a book. The book was then about, you know, different kinds of families, what we should look like. And I started to put them in the childcare centers so that other children that would go in had something that represented oh, them. how amazing. Yeah, I've got one of those books here. I think it's called the Colour for Life book series, isn't it? Beautifully written, lovely, lovely stories inside. I, I highly encourage people to have a look on for that if you're looking for widening your libraries and your bookshelves across all areas. You know, even doctor's offices, I think so many places where the people keep children's books but they don't always represent all the children that go to visit those they doctors. don't they really don't yeah i didn't think about that that's a good point i feel like it's it's exists in so many areas we put schools under the quash and i know that is obviously really important but i think it's as society as adults as just people as humans we owe it to the next generation of children i'm going to move on to the next question which is about where you're from and how that is such a triggering question. So I, interestingly, when I first moved to London in 2000, telling people I was from Canada was like a shock because I'm of Indian background. And then the next question was, why aren't you speaking French? Because that's a lot of the assumptions of Canadian. And that's true. There are parts of Canada that are French speaking, but not all. And then there was, a, we had a visitor come in once who was a black man and did speak French. 
And they just said, so he must be from Canada, but he can't be, he can't be from France. He's black. I mean, it was just the fun, like the idea that you have to answer this question where you're from. So I wonder when we talk about third culture kids, me included probably, if that, living in a totally different continent today from where I was brought up, from where my parents were brought up. And and what does that do for a, a person's identity crisis? Talk to me about this and tell me, in the moment, I think, honestly, if I if I give benefit of the doubt, most people do this innocently. When they say where you're from, I don't think they realize it's a triggering question. But I think it's important for us to have this conversation and bring it out there because I, I know it doesn't sit well with so many people. And I would love for you to talk to me a little bit more about that. Where are you from question? Like you said, sometimes I do believe it's just an innocent. It's just innocent question that people want to know. But it's not where I'm from that they're really trying to ask. And that's the thing. It's what is your heritage? And I think you need to think about the question that you're really trying to get to. Is it where's your what, what's your heritage or where are you from? Because where are you from can un, unpack so many different emotions with so many different people. And it's quite a personal question, too, because you, you for so many people, there's so many layers to that question. And 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 especially sometimes when people are saying I don't know if they're coming from a good place and this is the difference if I feel I feel that their energy is coming from a good place I don't mind answering the question but if I feel it's coming from a judgment or to to put me in some sort of box it's like a security thing well it's also the the question after the question right so if if they say where you're from and you answer like I did I'm from Canada or you want where would you say Naomi where you're from London I, right I, I would say from London and then it, like but no where are you really from yeah it's that it's the next question question and this is my point it's not you're not you don't really want to know where i'm from you want to know my background my heritage heritage and this is what you just need to get straight to the point instead of asking where i'm from so when i do say i'm from london it does it leads on to another question another question and especially from strangers it's quite a personal thing so unless you know the person or, or, or you want, maybe you're trying to find some commonality with that person. It's different, but it's a trigger. So you just need to remember sometimes when you're asking this question, it can be a trigger for a lot of people because it's quite, it quite, can be quite painful to try and say, I'm from here, I live here, but I'm French, I'm this, I'm African, but not easy. Well, yeah, and it's constantly trying to prove yourself. Prove, your, prove yourself, yeah. Why are you not accepting what I've just said? Sometimes, like when my kids get asked, oh, where are, you know, where are they from? It's almost because of their skin color, they don't belong. So sometimes when you ask that question, you're basically saying, I'm asking you that because I don't feel you belong in this country. So my kids are Australian and people always say to them, where are you from? So they'll say, I'm Australian. Oh, are you? My, 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 my son always says, but why do they say that to me? Well, I'm Australian. I'm like, some, I just say, so sometimes it's just the accent, it, it froze them, the accent, because you also lived in America and you've got British, British coming out from mum and also, so I think sometimes it could just be the accent. But he always says, I'm Australian, I know you're Australian, but sometimes people just want to delve a little bit further and find out more information. And you don't always have to give them an answer. You choose whether or not you want to answer that question. It's really, it's confusing. It's really confusing for kids. And I, I mean, I won't even get into it because that's not what I want to do. But then it brings a whole other layer when people start assuming your faith too, because you say you're from a certain place. Or, you know, if you're Malaysian, does that mean you're Islamic or not? Does that, are you Buddhist? You know, well, 
that's a personal question and, and assuming these questions trigger so many emotions and it is very personal so I always say try to get to the point of what you're trying to say is it really where am I from or what is your background heritage what's your cultural heritage ask the right question we're reframing it and using the right yeah, terminology yes exactly mm. what do you think is the hardest barrier for kids of mixed and blended families to break what what is the thing that we can do most to help those children who aren't black enough to fit in the black community i think we were talking about this once before aren't white enough to fit in the white community don't feel australian enough because they don't have the right accent because they haven't been there long enough don't really fit in the matter I mean, what can we do to help these children feel still confident it's confident it really is because at the end of the day it's something they're going to have to navigate. I can't navigate that for them because I have a different experience. So for, for my kids, it's to make sure they feel confident within themselves. But it's also to, again, in the schools, we need to address this stuff. We need to talk about it a lot more at schools, you know, about the different kind of families, different kind of people. We need to educate them. We need to have the books that, that are already established. We need to talk about these kind of conversations and discuss them a lot more and one day you know every, no one's everyone's going to be from all over when I when I'm, my kids generation you can slowly slowly there's so many kids of mixed cultures and races that we're not really going to be asking this question one day anyway I feel I, I feel everyone's from everywhere and all over that we this question is hopefully just going to be disappear yeah disappear but the only way we can really help is by making sure we build enough confidence in these kids and talk to them about who they are, instill their confidence, instill the cultures in them and, and get them to respect and embrace who they are. That's the only way we can do it. And, and, and schools also need to um, have these programs in place because I know that the schools that my kids are at, at the moment, they're trying to learn and try to be more culturally aware because there's hardly any um, kids of, in different cultures there. I always say that just because they're not there now, they could be there in the future. And you need to learn about different cultures and, and how to talk to us and, and how to engage and bring families in. And I think that's a lot of it. It's talking to the families. What can I do for you? How can I help you? How can I help your kids? And also the kids at a certain age, they can also be a voice. They can represent for the, themselves in the school. So you could have a group of kids from all different cultures and backgrounds, and they can be the voice for these other kids. You know, they can sit down and they can talk about it and then they can speak to the teachers and, and address their concerns. Because if, if it needs to be from the kids, because, you know, we can't navigate all of this for them. We can only help them find the path in order to build their confidence and who they are. Yeah, and hopefully be trailblazers because just because they've grown up that where they are today and there aren't maybe that many diverse people doesn't mean that's where they're going to end up. You can live in a different country and you'll be surrounded by mixed race families or, uh, you know, uh, a more diverse group. Like depending on where we live in Australia, one minute we could be filled with different cultures and an environment and the next we'll be isolated in the majority white area. So it just depends on where you're living and you just have to navigate that at the time. But for our kids' generation, I already know the young kids already have a voice. I'm already seeing kids um, basically just speaking their truth. They, they understand so much more than we give them credit for. And we can see this millenniums. They're, they are, they're going to be a force to be reckoned with. They really are. I love it. 
I'm excited. I'm excited for them as well. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they're going to teach us more than anything. Yeah, we've got to keep that going. That dialogue is important. And they're shining the light on those that need to be held accountable, which I think is really important as well. That's such an empowering and a hopeful message for so many. I think you're absolutely right. If you don't mind, I always like to talk a little bit about if today you could go back and see yourself, Naomi, as a teen girl in pre-adolescence, what kind of message would you give her knowing what you know today as a mum? I would have to say to myself to be less fearful. And I think I've, I've realised that as an adult now, but before as a teen, I, I was quite fearful of doing things. I was always afraid in case I made a mistake or what someone might say or, or how, how someone else might react. When really I should have been confident enough to know who I was. And I want to say that I... I want to be a person who believes in themselves. I didn't really believe in myself. And I'd say going back, believe in yourself, be confident, speak your truth and, and, and go for what you believe in, fight for what you believe in and don't worry about anything else. And all the negative voices that you hear on all those negative friendships, get rid of them early on. Just get rid of them. You don't need it. Uh, and find those people who are there to support you and empower you. Follow the path of the, the friends who are also aligned with the same message that you are and you want. Um, so just be strong, be confident and, and go in your truth, speak your truth. Amazing. So I think that really answers the question around what we want to see change for girls in the future is those things that so they don't feel fearful. I think that's a beautiful message. And tell me who your role models are and why. You know, who my, my, my role models are the everyday people like yourself. Oh, who are fight- yeah, I'm sorry. They are. They're the people who are fighting. You're the people who are trying to change the lives of young girls. And I think that is beautiful. People like you who are putting themselves out there, the mothers, the fathers, the young kids who are using their voice to make a change. These people are my role models. They are the ones that are fighting for the change. So I say to you, thank you for what you are doing. and from someone like you listening, people who are watching your shows and listening to your podcast, they're going to be inspired. So you are one of those role role models. Goodness me, I'm going to well up here. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Naomi. That's really left me teary. I I mean, that's really, really kind of you to say. And I think that, you know, hats off to everyone out there trying to do the small changes in their way. And I think it is all that, right? Small change here, small change there. And it will hopefully have the ripple effect that we want to create in in the world for our future. Oh, well, that's a brilliant place to end on. Everyone, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Elevate podcast with Naomi. I'm going to link again her book and the TED talk that she did recently on diversity and multiculturalism and how to change the dialogue around that. You don't want to miss either of these things. They are absolutely crucial for our kids to hear. They're messages I want to amplify and I hope you will take the time to do so. Thank you, Naomi, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prestipino from the Pine Studios 
for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.